Indeed, what a privilege and a joy it is for us to be able to come together this morning, that things are as well with us as they are, that we've been granted the beautiful privilege of coming together like this. As we have done so today, of course, our regular membership, we're so appreciative of the presence of each and every one. Again, visitors have come our way, and we'd like you to know how cordially welcome you are, and we want to invite you to come back at any opportunity you might have. If there are questions you may have about the Pippin congregation, feel free to ask one of our elders or someone else who can be more than helpful, I would hope, to share with you that information or direct you to someone who would be able to. Let me, in fact, begin the lesson this morning with a bit of an apology in the sense that we have been accustomed for quite a number of weeks to looking at the sermons as they're presented by way of the computer, but that won't be able to be possible this morning. We had just seen some of those problems developing, I think, last Lord's Day, and during this week I was unable to recreate those problems. It all worked well, but it isn't working so well this morning. So maybe I can get that fixed and taken care of in short order, and we'll get back to our regular routine on that part. The lesson, as it's entitled this morning, has to do, as you might have noted in the bulletin, with Engaged for Worship. Engaged for worship, and the text that Brother Fred read just a few moments earlier from the, from the 14th chapter of 1 Corinthians reminds us of that powerful and interesting setting in which there the Apostle Paul directed some comments, in fact, rather powerful comments to the congregation in Corinth, helping them understand what was to take place when they came together for worship, the manner in which that activity was to be approached, the circumstances in which it was to be taken place, this morning, might you and I take a renewed look at the aspects of worship and especially consider it in light of the matter of engagement, the role that you and I play in it, the part that we have to do in making it a successful worship for ourselves and for others. As we begin that, perhaps by way of introduction, it's a bit interesting to remember that famous statement uttered by our Savior in the fourth chapter of the Gospel according to John, in John 4, verse 24, as Jesus spoke there with that woman at the well in Samaria, he had these words to say, God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Though there is much emphasis that might be placed upon the usage of the word truth and the usage of the word spirit, and certainly both are inspired of God and worthy of our consideration, might I remark, though, in terms of the verb that our Savior used, he said, must. If you and I, or in fact anyone else, are to worship appropriately before God, notice Jesus used the word must. The matters of which he spoke are not optional. Worship must include truth, and it must include spirit. For if it does not include both, then it is not acceptable at all. It is not appropriate worship in His sight. It does not have the characteristics that worship must have. As one considers then that idea, what might we ask would be appropriate elements and items of worship? Has God allowed humankind to make choices and to use whatever He might wish as a part of a service and thus call it worship? Or has He prescribed, has He given heavenly directives in regard to what should be a part of worship? It might be at this point we can recall the lesson that we studied some two weeks ago, biblical silence, and affirm for us yet again that that matter touches this one. If the Scriptures have not positively authorized it, then it is forbidden. What has the New Testament authorized for my worship and yours when we come together? Well, first, we might remember music is a part of it, 
But it's not any kind of music. It is that involving singing, isn't it? We understand, as we'll see in a moment, passages that touch that subject and give heaven's approval to singing as a part of worship. And these songs that Brother Adam has led us in have been so beautiful and powerfully sung. They've shared thoughts that, in fact, tell us about the glory of Christianity, the beautiful home that awaits. In addition, we also find other matters as it relates to what God has authorized. In addition to singing, there is what we are currently doing. That is to say, a study of the Word of God as a message is proclaimed. In Acts chapter 20, verse 7, when that congregation in Troas came together, Paul preached unto them. You and I are following in that same suit even today. Thus, we might notice the second element then. What about a third one? May we not remember that the element of prayer was a part of those worship assemblies of which we read in the New Testament? In fact, in this very chapter from which we read, 1 Corinthians 14, 15, Paul made note, I'll pray with the Spirit and I'll pray with the understanding. In fact, the fourth one, could we not remember the partaking of the Lord's Supper? That beautiful and marvelous memorial first put in place and instituted by our Savior on the very night prior to His crucifixion. It is recorded in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and even a strong element stated also in John, in which we remember that those elements, the unleavened bread, the fruit of the vine, would be representative of until He comes again, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 26, until He comes again of His body and of His blood. And finally, what about the opportunity that we have to give as we've been prospered. And I call that an opportunity, for it is a cherished thing to carry on the work of the Lord in a day and time when it may seem so many have little appreciation for it. We understand the eternal character and the beauty that it can have not only for ourselves, but for those whose lives are touched by it. Thus, those elements, those that we've just listed, are five in number, and that list is exhaustive. There are no other elements the New Testament mentions as an approved part of worship. As we make comments like that one, would it not be fair to compliment the simplicity of them? We see that there are many things that perhaps in the eternal mind of God He could have chosen to be a part of worship, but some parts of the world may have had greater difficulty. These are things any of us can do at any age, anywhere. The beauty of God's simplicity. Let all things be done and edifying. 1 Corinthians 14, verse 26. These comments alone push us to the next element or first consideration of the major part of our lesson today. Isn't it sad, in light of the comments we've made, that there is a misunderstanding as it relates to the obligations involved in worship? We touched on that somewhat briefly just a moment ago, the usage of the word must how that, that places requirements upon us, absolute things that are essential, and thus they cannot be optional. They cannot be left out if we simply choose to do so, nor can we choose not to participate therein. What might be said more about worship in this light? Could it be fair to say that the worship assemblies as they're presented in the Scriptures are wonderful opportunities it is not entirely a good thing to view them as chores, tasks, jobs. It's an opportunity. I was glad when they said unto me, Let us go into the house of the Lord. Psalm 122 verse 1. 
And was not David greatly relieved when in Psalm 73, verses 16 to 18, he was able to remark of how he finally saw the answer of God when he was able to gather at the sanctuary. So many of the great questions in life and those things that perplex us, we find appropriate answers and at least approaches to them when we're able to come together to the assembly. An opportunity. A time when not only can we be strengthened and edified, but we can have a role to play in the edification of others. And finally, we can magnify the glorious name of the almighty and august God of heaven. To say all those things reminds us then that there's an obligation concerning worship. Jesus said again, must. Am I at liberty to do what I wish and call that worship in light of Jesus' statement? Is any person in, at liberty to make that decision? Might we remember that Jesus made reference in Matthew 15, verses 7 through 9, of worship that he called vain. He says, but in vain do they worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. We make an eternal and tragic mistake, and so does anyone who in fact chooses to replace or substitute anything God has commanded for worship with his or her own perspective or his or her own emotional responses. We know that our spirit must be involved. We know that our mind must be engaged. What are some ways in which the Scriptures teach us about that? In fact, let's look again at those five acts of worship and look more carefully at some of the passages in which those are described and notice the engagement which you and I are to have in it. Let's begin with singing. We noticed a minute ago that the New Testament makes reference to the element of singing, if you will, music and worship. And oh, how wonderful it is to hear the spirits of men and women, boys and girls, lifted as they blend their voices in collective harmony, singing the glorious praises of the truth of the Word of God. In light of that, what was Paul's statement to the Colossian brethren? He said, Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your heart to the Lord. That statement found in Colossians 3, verse 16. He began by saying, let the word of Christ dwell in you. As you and I strive to be more like Christ, as we strive to live a life closer and more in harmony with His inspired will, it is described as if He lives in us, as His word finds embodiment in us. No wonder Paul could say in Galatians 2, 20, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. For the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. The powerful presence of God's Word indwelling in within us. Notice again, he said, Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. To what extent, Paul? Or what shall be the embodiment or the consequence thereof? Teaching and admonishing one another. How, Paul? In psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Through what medium, Paul? Singing with grace in your heart to the Lord. When we come together and engage in song, Paul there makes note that, that singing is an act in which we teach and admonish one another. In the sister passage in Ephesians 5.19, there Paul made note, speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. Notice the commandment of that, if you would. Speaking to yourselves. Paul did not leave this in an optional matter. 
when you and I come together and look forward to those opportunities to worship, we are given commandment to sing. Notice if we choose thus not to participate, we're choosing not to worship. And such surely must not be looked upon favorably. It's still an amazing thought that God didn't anywhere command that you and I sing like an angel or that we in all the beautiness and power sing perfection to all the notes as they're presented. But He did say that we must sing. We must let the fruit of our lips proclaim praise to God, Hebrews 13, 15. And as we sing, we thus will not only encourage ourselves, but the great lessons and sermons in those songs will encourage others. We see we have an obligation to others in our worship. That's one of the grand reasons as to why attendance is so important, isn't it? We certainly can't encourage someone else if we have chosen to be absent. But yet when we're there and when we're present and when we, by virtue of those songs that we sing, do so in spirit and in truth and in power, what a great teaching example and lesson that can present to others as well. As we thus sing, we are in fact doing the very thing of which Paul spoke. I will sing with the Spirit and I will sing with the understanding. 1 Corinthians 14 verse 15. Thus, as we consider our own participation in singing, may we be reminded and renewed in our interest to participate and to sing the various songs that are presented and to strive with the efforts and the labor within us to let those words indwell within us and to sing them with power and with strength and with an interest to edify others. Inasmuch as we sing, might we remember there's another part of worship of which Paul speaks very much as well. What about giving? We noticed earlier that we have that opportunity to support the efforts and the work of the church. In 1 Corinthians 16, verse number 2, Paul said, as he again gave commandment to that congregation in Corinth, notice that they were to lay by in store as everyone had been prospered that there be no gatherings when I come. And that was to take place upon the first day of the week. Notice he said, lay by in store indicating an element of preparation. Readiness had been made. They had not simply given on the spur of the moment as to whatever was left over. He said, upon the first day of the week, let everyone lay by him in store as God hath prospered. It certainly takes a degree of mental engagement to contemplate the degree to which one has been prospered and to contribute that appropriate proportional amount to the service of God. Again, mental engagement. The fact that an effort is to be put forth by you and me to make certain that that matter of giving, that that matter of worship is done in a proper and appropriate fashion. We're reminded in 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9 that God loves a cheerful giver. He doesn't wish it to be done grudgingly or of necessity, but rather to do so out of a heart of gratitude and thanksgiving for that which God has so abundantly given to us. Is it not true that you and I abound in all the things of which Paul speaks in 2 Corinthians 9? Knowledge, physical blessings, spiritual blessings in abundance. Our giving financially is merely one way to express our gratitude backwards to Him. We might remember as we consider the matter of giving. One more time, it's stated as a command to us in 1 Corinthians 16 too. And that demands upon our part an engagement, a recognition of effort and labor as we proportionally give that which we should. What about praying? 
Is that also something of which we must be engaged in participating? We understand there's one person who leads us. It was Brother Vestal this morning who led us in, in the first prayer of our worship. Does that mean that others of us are able to allow our minds to wander and to think upon this or that or the other, to ponder what's for dinner or what's going to happen this afternoon or what happened yesterday? As Paul spoke about prayer, he again affirmed for us, I will pray with the Spirit and I'll pray with the understanding. And his point in that very chapter in the verses that follow is, how shall he be able to say amen if he has not understood? All of us should have opportunity and that desire to amen that prayer, that that prayer for the sick or for the welfare of our country, for the character of our congregation and our eldership, for other things of which we've prayed. It should be our desire to proclaim an amen at the conclusion of that prayer so that that which is done will be an accordedly granted to ourselves. Again, the word amen means so be it or let it be. It should be our hope that as we are led in that prayer, each of us should be able to at least quietly say, let it be. That's my prayer as well. But we could not have done that if we haven't followed it, if we haven't mentally been engaged in it, if we haven't in essence followed along the sentiments and thoughts as they've been expressed. No wonder Paul affirmed then in 1 Timothy 2, verses 1 and 2, as he made reference to the very fact of supplications, giving of thanks, prayers and intercessions be made for all men, specifically those that are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. Prayer and worship. It is an opportunity to again engage and solicit the great benefits of the God of heaven and to express our thanksgiving to Him. We should thus not allow our minds to drift or to wander, but to be engaged in that prayer so that we can offer up prayers and thanksgivings to God. Mental engagement, yet again, made note of in these passages. In James chapter 1, verses 6 through 8, in fact, as we contemplate prayer, there is forever a text on that occasion that challenges us to understand that what is prayed must be done so in a character of faith. In fact, does he not say, Let not that man that doubteth think that he shall receive anything of the Lord. The desire then to pray with assurance and confidence that not only is God going to hear, but that if and ask according to his will, he will answer that prayer. Oh, the great benefit of prayer. Isn't it stated in Revelation 8, as if it's sweet incense that comes before the very throne of God? Indeed it is. When you and I pray with assurance and affirmation in accordance with his, with his will, those prayers ascend and arise before the very halls of heaven, and our God is aware of them. The very answer of those things leads us to the next element in our worship and revisit some about it as well. Would you contemplate with me the studying of the Word? We understand even now that's what we're attempting to do, to open the pages of God's Word and allow it to challenge us and to encourage us and to improve us in our spiritual life. And yet in those passages of which Paul preached and others, they gathered and listened to a sermon or a didactic discourse, if you will. And as that was presented, they were sometimes challenged, they were sometimes edified and encouraged, but in all ways, Timothy was told, preach the word. Be instant in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and doctrine. The exhortation that's to be found in the word of God. 
when we meet together and devote a portion of our worship time to a study of the Word, that is approved in heaven. And that approval meets with the fact of the help that it can mean to us. Each of us, and that includes myself, preachers are not exempt. We each are challenged by the words that we study from the Word of God. We're encouraged to implement that which we read of. We're encouraged to alter and change our life, to repent if that's necessary. We're all encouraged to obey. As I stand before you then and proclaim the Word of God, may we always remember that the words are not the words of a man. It is our attempt to share God's words. That's all that Paul told Timothy to do. What Timothy thought made no difference. Timothy's speculation was unimportant. Timothy's feelings and emotions were irrelevant. What Timothy was to preach and that which can save the souls of men is the Word of God. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Romans 1.16 The character thus of what Paul encouraged Timothy to preach and what he himself preached may well be summarized in 1 Corinthians 9.16 where he said, Woe is unto me if I preach not the gospel. Thus, as we sit at the feet of the gospel and listen to its beautiful statements made, sometimes challenging, sometimes very rebuking, but oftentimes very encouraging, we are led to appreciate that our tomorrow in service to God can well be better than today. We can mature and be strong in our service to God. All of that summarized in the statement of the preaching of the Word. You see, when we then listen to lessons and strive to understand, we again should be mentally engaged because we must remember that ignorance is no excuse. Did not Paul state that very matter in Acts 17 verses 30 and 31? For the times of this ignorance God winked at, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent, because he hath appointed a day in the which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained, whereof he hath given assurance unto all men, in that he hath raised him from the dead. Thus it offers no hope to stand before God on judgment and plead ignorance. God does not look upon ignorance and wink at it. Rather he demands obedience and repentance. Thus, we should learn His Word, engage ourselves in a study of it in times when we're gathered like this. Those thoughts lead us perhaps to the last one, the Lord's Supper. We remember that this too is a very solemn memorial in that our Savior instituted it the very night prior to His crucifixion. In fact, it was sometime after the six o'clock hour on that Thursday evening when he and the disciples had gathered together to observe and to keep the Passover celebration. But on that occasion, shortly as it approached near the end of the meal and shortly thereafter, Luke 22, verses 19 and 20 remind us that Jesus took some unleavened bread. And he said, This is my body, which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. Now that's an interesting phrase, isn't it? They had just eaten bread during the meal, and yet he took another piece... And as he did that, he said, this is my body. It's clear that he was indicating to them that there was a very powerful and lasting memorial significance to that bread. It represented his body. And later to the Corinthian church, Paul said the same thing, that that bread was a true and full representation of the very precious body of Christ. But the Lord wasn't finished. He took a cup after supper and said, this is my blood of the New Testament which is shed for many for the remission of sins. 
the contents of that cup then were representative of the blood that at that moment he had not yet shed. But a mere 12 hours later he would. That next morning on Friday morning, as they brought the Savior to that old hill called Golgotha, they nailed him to the cross and dropped it into the hole and there he was suspended between heaven and earth. His blood dripped down from his back and from the thorns that had been pressed into his head. And as the lashes had opened up his back, John 19, 1, through the scourging, that blood, that blood was symbolized and emblemized in the character of that fruit of the vine. Later, Paul told the Corinthians, For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do proclaim the Lord's death. Thus, Paul looked forward into the future until the time ends, until the time the Savior returns. Those matters will symbolize what happened at Calvary 2,000 years ago. We can never forget it. And thus, when we partake of that Lord's Supper, our mind must be engaged in discerning the Lord's body and the Lord's blood. That's a direct commandment of 1 Corinthians 14, or 1 Corinthians 11, verses 25 to 29. He said, when we thus discern the Lord's body, and that word means to appreciate, it means to rightly divide or to separate, it means to mentally imagine and take our minds to that scene of the cross and to fully reflect upon what Jesus has done for us. Thus, during the course of the service, it doesn't matter which of the five elements of worship we consider, our participation is demanded by the God of heaven. It is, in fact, something that we should look forward to doing. The excitement of being a part of these matters, singing, studying, praying, partaking, and giving, all of them are those which are exceedingly important in our daily walk of life because once we do those in assembly, they provide strength for what lies ahead. They provide a greater sense of maturity for what will may be coming. To state all of those things, Perhaps we can look then at some observations. What are some lessons that we might be able to glean from these that we can use in a practical way to help ourselves in our own worship? May I submit the first one would be this. We need to develop an interest in participating in worship. We should teach our children from an early, early age the precious privilege there is in participating in worship. In fact, we must help them see that worship is not a spectator activity. We may well sit in a movie theater and watch a movie, but we're watching. We didn't make the movie. We were not actors or actresses in it. We had no, nothing to do with producing it or developing it or even shipping it. We're nothing but spectators. At a ball game, we sit in the stands and watch. But worship must never be that way. We are to actively participate in worship, in the singing, in the praying, in the studying, in the partaking, in the giving. We must be involved. And as we are involved, that's what's commanded. And that's what brings glory and honor unto Him. On the very first mention of the establishment of the church in Acts, the second chapter, might we remember in verse 42 it says, And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, in fellowship, in breaking of bread, and in prayers. And the adverb steadfastly reminds us of the intense interest and serious attitude with which those activities were pursued. Amazing, isn't it, to think about the grandeur of how worship is. I understand, as well as all of us do, I'm sure, we live in a society where the common thought, in many ways, 
is to turn worship as, as other things are into spectator activities. I'll come and listen to a choir. Or I'll come and perhaps watch something on a video. But that isn't worship. All of us are to sing. All of us are to pray. All of us are to participate who are members of the body. All of us are to give as we've been prospered. All of us are to study the Word. God hasn't given those duties to a selected few, but rather we each have the privilege and we each have that opportunity. But in the second place, in addition to developing an interest to participate, that helps us see then that those who are the men, perhaps as you mature and grow, can look forward to that time when you can kindly make mention to one of the elders or those who make up the list of the men that participate. I'd like to lead a prayer. I'd like to wait on the Lord's table. I want to be actively engaged in leading in that worship. And as we who are the men mature and grow, look forward to those opportunities when you can encourage others by leading and by being a part of those things. Again, it is not a spectator activity. But also, can we not see that as we consider worship, preparation is necessary for it. We've noted all along that mental engagement is necessary for all five of the parts of our worship. That obviously has some interesting things. That means to be mentally engaged, we need to be ready to do that. We shouldn't then do those things in life that will hinder or hamper our opportunity for mental involvement in the worship. That means we perhaps need to get into bed on time Saturday night. We need to, in fact, get up, make ourselves ready for that morning, to amble in at the last minute, unprepared and unready. It will make worship a far more difficult thing to accomplish for us. We need to be ready. We need to set aside the monies to provide and give as we've been prospered. And again, perhaps we need to be ready to bring Bible, pencil, paper, all the things that are necessary in order to con contribute and to get as much out of that worship period. Sometimes I think about the character of our students in school. Do we not expect them to be prepared? You bring your textbook. You bring, say, a stapler, or a pencil, or pen, all that's necessary. Calculator. We expect them to be prepared so that when they come, they can do that which is asked of them. Take a test, take notes, other things that may be required. Does God expect less of us? We too then should look forward to those opportunities to prepare ourselves so that when we gather, the worship can be maximally participated in and that we can in fact be the greatest encouragement to others. I've mentioned on a few occasions this matter of edifying others in our worship. Paul discussed that at length in Ephesians 4. Beginning in verse number 11, he made reference to several offices and those who participate in several works in the church. And as he did so, he specifically said that the reason for it was for the edification of others. That, in fact, would be a good time to make mention of that note again. Just as surely then as we should seek to develop an interest in participating in worship, might we never forget that as we prepare for worship, we should look forward to not only benefiting ourselves but others. When I sing and when I participate, others are aware of that and perhaps that encouragement will be what will aid them tomorrow to overcome a sin or some difficulty that they shall face. It's an amazing thing maybe to look at the last major observation. What about as we think about the specifics of edifying others? 
it goes without saying that no part of our worship should be done by me in a way that specifically distracts or in a way that specifically hinders the participation of somebody else. God is a God of, who is not one of confusion, not one who in fact desires things that would be chaotic. But even our worship is to be done in an orderly and decent fashion. And as I participate in it, I should seek to edify others, build them up and not distract them, or do those things that would hinder them from studying or praying or partaking of the Lord's Supper. Might we remember in regard to that one, we are to discern the Lord's body until He come. If I'm then doing something during that time of the service that's distracting someone else and they are thus not able to discern the Lord's body, God takes aware notice of that fact. My needless distraction of someone else has thus caused a problem with them engaging in the fullness of the worship that was set before them. And the same thing might be said of prayer. If during prayer I'm choosing to do something, again, non-essential and needless, but yet it's distracting to someone else, in what way does God look upon that? Do I love that person the way I should if I'm choosing to distract them when they're praying to their great God of heaven? Am I choosing to love them as I should when, during the Lord's Supper, I'm choosing to do something that takes their mind off of what God said they should be thinking of? It's a sobering, reflecting thought, isn't it? Maybe in light of that, could we remember that as we seek to minimize our distractions to others, that's not to say that from time to time things will not happen over which we have little control. A baby may cry. We can't help that. But we can seek to deal with that as quickly as we can. But we're speaking about those things which we do that we need not do that distract others and in fact hinder them from participating in the worship. We should ever strive to make our worship a solemn proclamation of the degree of the love that we have for Him. For is it not said in First Chronicles 16, 29, Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. That phrase given to us again in the 95th Psalm. Maybe one of the final thoughts then in our lesson this morning. Drawn again from that text that was read earlier in our reading. Three times in 1 Corinthians 14, Paul makes note of the impact that worship has on others. We make a dire mistake when we think that we alone are responsible in terms of worship. We must participate, but we should participate in a way that again does not distract others. Note verse 12 with me of that chapter. Even so ye, for as much as ye are zealous of spiritual gifts, seek that ye may excel to the edifying of the church. Paul said the greater good, regardless what spiritual gifts you may have, the greater good is to consider the edifying of the church, the body. Will this edify others? Notice also verse number 17. For thou verily givest thanks well, but the other is not edified. Paul rebuked this congregation in Corinth. What you are doing is such that you may be benefited. But remember, what about somebody else? The object in worship, first of all, is God. Glorify God in the beauty of holiness, 1 Chronicles 16, 29. Our Savior said, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and Him only shalt thou serve, Matthew 14. Secondly, what about others? We need to minimize distractions in terms of disturbing them in the worship, in terms of drawing their mind off what it should be concentrating on. 
Notice the text also, verse 26, the last one that we read earlier. How is it then, brethren, when you come together, every one of you hath a psalm, hath a doctrine, hath a tongue, hath a revelation, hath an interpretation? Let all things be done unto edifying. There was a congregation who, when they came together, it was a chaotic, jumbled mess. One person talking, another talking, another one with a revelation, yet another with interpretation, someone else doing otherwise. Paul said, brethren, this ought not be. God is not the author of confusion. When you come together, let all things be done and edifying, and that included the partaking of the Lord's Supper. And thus, as that's done today, those inspired instructions haven't changed. We can look forward also to being mentally engaged in worship. And in summary, we can thus say that whether it be the singing, the partaking, the giving, the other matters that involve itself in worship, we need to look forward to being those who participate, to be involved in it. Then, we need to understand the requirement to edify others in that way and to not present distractions or things that would make it more difficult for them. And then finally, we need to remember that preparation for worship, to be mentally engaged, is a necessary matter. As we read then the things contained in the worship, the Bible concerning worship, we're reminded of what a tremendous privilege this activity is. It should be a highlight to the week. It should be something that spurs us onward and upward in service to God. For it is a time when we magnify His name and lift up His will. John 17, 17. This very morning, may we be reminded now and as we continue to meet at various assemblies about the grandeur, the precious, the precious privilege of worship. This morning, are you a Christian? You are not able to participate in worship if you're not a member of His body for those acts are reserved in terms of glorifying Him for those that are members of His body, those that have had their sins cleansed in the blood of the Lamb. Have you believed in the Word of God, believed Jesus to be the Son of God, repented of your sins, confessed His name, and been baptized? If you've scripturally done those things, you became a member of the body, Acts 2.47. If you have not done that, let today be the day to accomplish it. Let Christ add you to His body. You then can worship Him like never before, for you've never been able to worship Him before. Now you can. If you have become a member of the body but have not been faithful to that calling, come back to that first love just as the church in Ephesus was commanded to do in Revelation 2.5. As you come back to Him, He will forgive those sins, whatever they may have been, and you again can have a full and complete relationship with your Heavenly Father. This very morning, if we could be of assistance to anyone in your obedience to, the, to Christ, let us do that, even now while together we stand and while we sing.